Welcome to the Best of MBS podcast, a collection of the best interviews hosted by Michael Bungay-Stanier, best-selling author of The Coaching Habit and How to Begin. Today's interview is from The Coaching Habit podcast. Here's your host, MBS. I am Michael Bungay-Stanier. You're listening to The Coaching Habit podcast, where I get to talk to writers, thinkers, movers, shakers, sometimes even coaches, to just talk about what coaching is, how coaching's influenced and affected people's lives, how they show up to be more coach-like with the people with whom they work. And today I get to talk to one of, actually one of my role models, a mentor, and a long-term friend of mine in the coaching world, Ruth Ann Harnish. And you know, when I do these interviews, I ask people to send me their, their bio, and Ruth Ann sent me hers, and I'm like, holy cow, I could spend the whole whole interview just talking about Ruth Ann's bio. Um, <laughs> as she says at the start, she is a multi-hyphenate. So she is an activist, a philanthropist, an author, a journalist. She is a coach as well. She's a founder of various institutions. She's an executive producer of movies. She really has a great deal of influence. And I know her as one of the great champions for coaching. Um, she comes to coaching in part as a philanthropist has been a great supporter and founder of things like the TED Fellows Coaching Program, which is known as Support Ed, which I was lucky enough to be part of for a while. She funds the coaching program of the Sundance Institute of Women at the Sundance Fellows Initiative. And she's the founding father of the Institute of Coaching at the Harvard Medical School's McLeay Hospital. She's an active coach herself. She runs a pro bono coaching practice um, and served on the board of the ICF, the International Coach Federation, and the IAC as well. And she also plays her role as an active philanthropist as part of the Harnish Foundation and was, in fact, named one of Inside Philanthropy's 50 Most Powerful Women in the U.S., as well as being a contributing author of 10 Habits of Highly Successful Women. There is actually more, but I'm going to call <laughs> it at that because um, I want to actually talk to Ruth Ann, not just talk about Ruth Ann. So, Ruth Ann, welcome. It's so nice to have you here. Such a delight to be with you. And I want to thank you for all the years that you gave of your time, your talent, and your expertise to those amazing talk about multi hyphenates known as the TED Fellows. Oh, so good. It's, it's different coaching people of extraordinary ability, isn't it? Mm. And it was so interesting because these are, these are people recognized as TED Fellows, so recognized as having potential to really change the world. And uh, Ruth Ann and uh, Renee Friedman, as the founders of this, would create a weekend where people would show up and these telefellows would be both brilliant and exhausted. <laughs> brilliant because <laughs> they're brilliant, exhausted because they're overwhelmed by the enormity of their idea. And Ruth Ann and Renee brought supporters and facilitators and subject matter experts in to give these fellows a boost to get them closer to having the impact in the world that they were seeking. They were wonderful events. Those were life-changing events for so many people, coaches included, because yeah. one of the things that we don't talk about is that we as coaches are often transformed by the experience of working with extraordinary people. Yeah, that's exactly right. And honestly, I think the the prevailing sentiment of these uh, TED Fellow events was, I have no idea why I'm here and I have no idea how I can help these young, talented people. But I think all the coaches grew and learned from that. Well, the program itself was such an important part of amplifying the fellow's experience. Mm. Renee Friedman volunteered to get a cadre. She had, oh, I think over a hundred people on her roster of professional coaches with a minimum of seven years experience right. coaching high quality people so that they were not 
working in simple problems, but right. major complex problems. And all these people selflessly volunteered. Mm. Every fellow had the opportunity to have a personal coach and for at least their fellowship year. And then for some years afterward, right. because Renee was able to make these matches. And for anyone who is considering adding coaching to anything you're doing, if you've heard of the TED conferences, you know they're a big deal thing. When the TED fellows were asked, what's been most important to you to have the TED fellowship? The thing that they said most often was either being at the conference itself mm -hmm. or being coached. And for many, coaching was their number one benefit. Wow. So whatever it is your business or organization or any group might be up to, consider adding a coaching component to maximize the effectiveness of whatever it is you are doing. I'm going to ask you a little more about that because I'm curious. I mean, you've seen a lot of water under the bridge in the world of coaching. And I'm just curious, as you think about the impact you see these coaches having, what lessons have you learned around deploying coaches so that they can have the impact that they're hungry for? Because I've certainly seen it attempting to deploy coaches and it's a bit of an anticlimax. The Ted Fellows thing, obviously a big success. So I'm curious to know what you learned about what makes it work. Well, Michael, so many coaches I have met are in the unfortunate position of needing to sell their services as much as they need to deliver them. Mm -hmm. And oftentimes, the financial complication of the relationship yeah. is, is what I see as the obstacle. One of the reasons my coaching is so satisfying to me and I think received so well by others is there's no financial transaction involved because I'm blessed not to have to work for the money. And the people who have been participating in TED Fellows and the Sundance Fellows are people who are enough along in their life that this is their gift to the world. So by removing the financial incentive, the how can I get more business out of this, by how can I make this my gift, yeah. I think that transforms the quality of the coaching relationship. And I do believe that Research has shown that the quality of the coaching relationship is key to how the coaching is received and implemented. Mm -hmm. That's really interesting because there's the, the alternative argument where you could go, uh, people only value what they pay for. So I certainly understand what you're saying from the coach's side of you, which is that need to go, I've got to find the client because I need the money can complicate and, and diminish the relationship somewhat perhaps. But there's also that piece on the other side, which is like, do people really appreciate this if they're getting something that's been given away rather than having some of their skin in the game? So how did you feel that? Let me agree yeah. with you. Yeah. Uh, there are different strokes for different folks. Mm -hmm. Some clients, and, and this may be people who can afford to pay anything and people who cannot afford to pay right. anything. Some clients only value things that have a dollar figure attached to them. Right. That's their value system. Yeah. If it doesn't have what we call money, yeah. <laughs> which, <laughs> right. is, which is a, a, is a whole other topic. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Let's do that sometime. Yeah. But the thing we call money is what they want, yeah. not the thing we call value. Yeah. <laughs> they want the thing we call money. And so if someone is giving them 
a service of any kind and not charging money, such a person will say, well, that can't be worth anything. Right. But there are others who are value-oriented, not dollar or pound or shilling-oriented, who will look at the gift for what it is, and their gratitude will pour over the coach because they recognize, or or whoever is giving them or doing a service pro bono. Yes. When I first came to no coaching, Michael, it was through the... uh, an organization that dealt with the top 5% of wealth holders Mm. when the idea of coaching was very, very new and most people had not heard of it. Wealthy people are, I don't want to paint them with a broad brush, but most of the wealthy people I have known are accustomed to being regarded as a wallet, as a source of money. Mm. They are not seen as themselves as humans as much as they are seen as a net worth with capability of giving me some. Right, right. (laughs) I totally hear that, yeah. And so when we brought a coaching program to this nonprofit, one of the key things that that we had to watch for were coaches who were value-oriented and not dollar-oriented, who understood that even though a financial transaction was happening, that this was extremely weighted and emotional for Mm -hmm. a lot of people with money. It's like, you're not really wanting to help me. You don't really believe those things you're saying because you're taking my money. Right, right. So in that case, the value proposition the, the pro bono coach for the wealthy person is perhaps more appreciated than the one who costs right. a reasonable fee. Uh, so interesting. And it really, I mean, it's just another conversation that could go on for hours around just what, how money complicates stuff <laughs> and, it does. and where it takes us. Yeah. If I could take one yeah. little moment for my public service announcement, if Please. you are intrigued by this conversation, write your money story. Write your money autobiography. Who taught you about money? How did they use money? What did you see that didn't match the words? What are several of the crossroads experiences Mm. in your life that had to do with money? Has money ever been traumatic? What does money mean to you? I could go on again. This could be another whole show. (laughs) but, But telling yourself your true story about how you came to think about money the way you think about money will be a revelation to you, I promise. It is interesting. Um, yeah, that is, that's great. That's a lovely takeaway already. So thank you so much, Ruthann. I want to uh, kind of almost building on the Ted Fellows piece um, and knowing that they're doing great work in the world, work that has meaning, work that has impact. Um, and knowing that you've, from the little I know about you and your career, from having had the pleasure of hanging out in some ways with you for 10 or 15 years, you've done a lot um, and had impact in all sorts of different ways. But I'm curious to know what you're up to these days. So when you think about this idea of great work, work with more impact, work with more meaning, what's got your attention these days? You have asked me on the very day that we are launching more of our projects into the world. Wow, uh, the Harnish Foundation has created a curriculum for girls 8 to 13 called Funny Girls, and it teaches leadership skills through improv. We have five core leadership skills that we convey through trained uh, professional teachers. Some are uh, improv themselves, and some are youth workers who have picked up improv skills through our training. Mm. But 
kids get a chance to learn how to be fully themselves, come into their full voice, learn to work well with others, learn to be in touch with their emotions and therefore in touch with the emotions of others. So many different ways that we can teach our young girls not to lose sight of the leadership within, that they can become leaders of themselves first and then help to lead others into the future. We're very excited about it. And we're all over the web right now. If you Google Harnish, H-A-R-N-I-S-C-H, and Funny Girls, you'll find a video and maybe you'll find some more news about uh, what we're doing because we're releasing a little something every few days now. I love that. (laughs) Another thing I'm up to is I'm producing movies. I have several movies in theaters right now and a couple out on iTunes. And one I think would be really interesting for people who listen to your podcast is the documentary Unrest, U-N-R-E-S-T. And it's funny, I didn't even think about this when I started on this with you, but it was produced and directed and stars a TED fellow. Oh, perfect. Jennifer Brea was a Harvard PhD when one day she could not sign her name on a check. And within a couple of days, she was almost paralyzed, could not move. And doctors could not figure out what was wrong with her mm-hmm. and wouldn't believe her because sometimes she was fine to go into the doctor's office. She started videoing herself right. when she was at her worst to prove to doctors, look, I can't even move sometimes. Right. And it became what is five years later, a theatrically released documentary called Unrest. Wow. And it turns out she was diagnosed with myalgic encephalomyelitis, which is commonly known as chronic fatigue syndrome and dramatically misunderstood. And she, via Skype, just as you and I are talking today, interviewed others around the world who are having the same, I'm in bed and I can't get up experiences and how governments in other places deal with this differently. In the U.S., so many people go undiagnosed Mm -hmm. because they're not believable. And why aren't they believable? They're female. Uh (laughs) 85% of the people who get this are female. Women, right. And therefore, hard for a doctor to believe that it's not just all in her head. Right, right. (laughs) And so listening to people and hearing what they are saying and being with them fully present with them is a key to this film that I think coaches and others can take away. And for anyone contemplating marriage or a long-term relationship, this is also the story of what happens if you are asked to live up to your promises? Mm. What if in sickness and in health means really, really bad sickness fast right after we're married? Right. Yeah. Powerful stuff. You know, Ruthann, I mean, both of these great projects you're talking about at the moment have a strong root in feminism in a way of supporting women's work. And I know that, you know, on the internet and the like, you're actually sometimes called the punk rock fairy godmother of feminism, which is (laughs) an awesome title. Um, I'm wondering, you know, was there a kind of crossroads moment for you in the past where this commitment to feminism and its different forms really became... A moment for you? You know, one of those moments where you're like, do I go this way? Do I go that way? And it kind of made the difference? Mm, I think almost any 
I'm going to say American, but from what I'm seeing on the web with the Me Too hashtags in the last few days, I'm going to say this is generally a universal experience. Growing up female... <laughs> is enough. That's a crossroads That's moment. Yeah. That's it. <laughs> right. From the first time they tell you you can't because you're a girl. Right. And they tell you that all the time. They still tell you that. Right. And and if you look at, for example, another project I'm involved in is reflective democracy. If you look at who gets elected to office, uh, it's predominantly white people. Yeah. It's predominantly male people. Mm-hmm. And this does not accurately reflect the population. And it cannot possibly accurately represent that population in policymaking. It's right. just not possible. It's just not possible. And I believe in the, yes, you can have eight blue-eyed blonde men and have a lot of diversity within that group. Yeah. I believe that. Yeah. But I really don't believe you can represent people of color or female people or uh, gender non-binary people right. in the same way you you could if you actually included those people. <laughs> yeah, you know, so, it's, 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 it's it strikes me. me. I mean, this is kind of related, but every time I walk onto an airplane and I walk through business class and I'm like, there's a lot of old white dudes here. <laughs> it's like, there's got to be something going on here where there's such a over-representation of white men in in positions of power in politics and beyond. You know, when I first met you, Michael, I wondered what it was like for you not being exactly like everyone else. (laughs) By that, I mean Canadian, of course. No. (laughs) (laughs) But I also, the first time I met you in person, said, well, he's also tall, handsome, smart, and charming. (laughs) So he probably doesn't experience life the same way others might right. had they shared some of his circumstances. Yeah, and not just that, but straight and well-educated as well. So I've got a, I've got a bunch of things that absolutely put me in a position where like, if I'm not succeeding in the system, what the hell's going on here? Because I've had all the cards dealt to me, quite frankly. So yeah, it's an interesting position where you reflect on the privilege that you have and you go, how do I how do I manage my position of privilege to allow others to flourish? And that's where I am now because I started out poor, scrappy, and female and white and feeling terribly discriminated against because I was. Yeah. But now that I'm old and that I'm still white, still female. <laughs> still scrappy. And still scrappy. But I have to remember, I'm now in a hugely privileged position because mm. I have had some of the advantages you mentioned. I'm not college graduate, but I am educated. I have had the privilege of great teaching. Yeah. I have I have financial resources that were unimaginable to me at an earlier time in my life. I was bankrupt once. So, mm-hmm. I mean, having anything is pretty great to have (laughs) to have extra is remarkable so at this point in my life i'm trying to drop the mic and pass it to women of color other people of color non-binary people and younger people right because i recognize how much privilege i have and i might have said to you when you invited me kindly to be your guest maybe there's somebody else who doesn't have quite as much privilege who needs this spot but you know i have faith that you're going to get to that person too yeah and i love you so i wanted to talk to you (laughs) (laughs) thank you thank you and i'm quite conscious of wanting to create a podcast which a guest list which which has a which reflects the world rather than reflects my my many lovely 
white male friends who are all interesting, <laughs> but they're to your point of view, they may there's diversity within that, but there's not as much diversity as there is in the world. And we love the world. Right. I, some people want to reject what's different, but I think the coaching profession and the, and being in the habit of how this is the coaching habit, being in the habit right. of having a coach-like attitude toward those you meet, which is there is greatness in you. Yeah. There is so much in you you don't even see in yourself that I am going to see in you and reflect back to you with positivity. Yeah. You know, that's how I try to approach the world, as many will tell you I fail constantly, <laughs> but I don't want to send away those people with whom I have differences. I I want the greatness in all of us to make this inclusive, diverse world all that it can and should be for all of us. Ruthanne, one of the the things I know about great coaches is that they do their own work. You know, they self-reflect, they have a degree of self-awareness, self-wisdom. This conversation around diversity is one reflection of that. But I'm curious for you, as you think back on the path you've walked, what's a hard lesson that you've had to learn or maybe you have to keep? I mean, I don't know about you, but I just keep learning the same damn lesson over and over again. <laughs> I'm like, come on, Michael, have you not figured this out yet? But I'm wondering for you, is there a is there a, uh, a hard lesson that you've continued to have to learn? Mm, I, you know, you I've never really thought what could my book be, but that could my book that could be a whole book, right? right. <laughs> Stuff I have to learn over and over <laughs> right. and over and over. One that I learned that I don't have to learn over and over is the way I grew up, the times in which I grew up, favored. The iconoclast, that rugged individualist, mm. that she made it herself, the self-made man, the one great human theory, the right. it's my idea. Well, I learned if your idea doesn't have friends, it's not a very good idea. Right. And if you're the only person who's really caring about something or demanding to be the spokesperson for it or to own it, what happens if you get hit by the proverbial bus? Your idea goes to. Mm-hmm. And I have so many of my coaching clients have the same I've got to do this myself attitude. Right. Or I dare not ask for help. Right. The Superman or, syndrome. Yeah. Or if I don't do it myself, I'm a loser or I'm weak or it's not really my idea then. Well, guess mm -hmm. what? It's not your idea anyway. Right. <laughs> you got that idea from somewhere, but it didn't come just from you. Yeah. It's a product of everything in your life that produced that idea. And your idea will not come to life alone either. It will be the product of all of its friends and all of the infrastructure and ecosystems that will exist to bring it into being. Yeah, I love that. You know, I think I say in the great work book, if, you, if you're doing great work by yourself, you're probably not actually doing great work. But I like oh, how here's you, another one. Well, I'm I like how you said that better. Yeah, no, go for it. This is here's another one that I don't have to learn over and over again. <laughs> right. When people tell you who they are, believe them. Oh, it's the Maya Angelou. I love that. Yeah. And she says, believe them the first time. Nice. <laughs> and these are lessons. Both of the ones I just told you are things I had to learn over and over and over and over until now. I go, oh, you are telling me who you are. Like right away, you're telling me who you are. I need to believe you. And and why is that? What what's the benefit of believing somebody right away when they tell you who they are? Because we make people up in our heads. Mm. We invent them 
to suit the picture we have of them. I watch other people do this all the time. Why, he's so good looking. What would make him rob a bank? Right. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? Right. People have asked that very question of me many times. So, I <laughs> <laughs> But you get it, that people have a projection of yes. what they think you should be or could be or ought to be based on their perception of you. But sometimes the sweetest person is telling you in subtle ways, I'm only sweet because I want something from you. Mm -hmm. Watch me. <laughs> nice. There are so many ways that people will tell you. So it's to your benefit to, at least it's my opinion, it's to your benefit yeah. to be living in the real world nice. so that you do not lose money, emotion, time to people who are saying words to you, <laughs> right. but telling you who they are in ever so many other ways. Uh, I we think that's the key lesson for me, which is what you're asking people to do is see who's standing in front of you and listen with all your senses as to who's actually showing up, because that's probably the truth. So another thing I've had to learn over and over and clearly haven't learned very well is don't interrupt. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not kidding. That's hard for me because as a tele former television host and radio host, yes. it's your job to keep it moving. Right. And sometimes you have to interrupt a person to get to the commercial or because that has gone on too long. <laughs> right. And I'm afraid that that habit has carried through my lifetime <laughs> when, when it is inappropriate and rude, and I apologize. Well, that's, I didn't feel interrupted if you're apologizing to me, but allow me to move us on to the, the, the final question I wanted to ask you in this interview, which was this. You know, you're, you're a vastly experienced coach. You've worked with all sorts of people. Um, you have a, a great array of coaching tools and models and processes at your fingertips. But is there a favorite process or a tool or model that you have, one that you kind of come back to or you just lean into it because it works so well so often it has the impact you're looking for? What's a, what's a favorite coaching approach or tool for you? To ask at the beginning of the call, what is your hoped for outcome? Nice. So that I know right away what they are expecting. to, And I may, I may expand by saying, what do you hope to say is true at the end of this conversation that is not true right now? Oh, I love that question. I got that from another coach. Yeah. <laughs> and and I, I, I got both of those from two other coaches. And I think I know who they are, but I hate to credit the wrong coaches. So I, <laughs> I will send you in the, in the coaching notes later. Perfect. And there is another, there's a coaching question I love because you can always use it which is, why are you telling me this oh, now? And you emphasize that. a different word depending on why are you telling me this now? Right. Why are you telling, why are you telling me this now? Right. Why, why are you telling me that? Why are you telling me this now? Why are you telling me <laughs> this now? Every one of those is a different question. I love that. That's such a great insight. I mean, there's, a, there's a two levels of learning there. One is that particular question. But one is to hear that any question probably has five versions of that question within it, just depending on where you put the emphasis. I'm just going to put out there that Barbara Mark and Renee Friedman probably taught me those things. Perfect. Hope it works. <laughs> we'll, give, we'll give them the credit. And if you feel that you should get the credit, please call us at our toll-free number, 1-800-MICHAEL-COACHES, and you can, you can correct me around that. 
Um, Ruthann, this has been a wonderful conversation. For people who want to find out more about the, the range and interesting, cool projects you're doing at the Harnish Foundation and beyond, where, where should they look? We are online at the HF or Harnish Foundation, the HF.org. I'm on Twitter, Ruthann Harnish. The Harnish Foundation is there too, and Instagram and Facebook. I'm everywhere. I'm everywhere. Perfect. And I am so grateful to you, Michael, for your service to coaching and your fine work with clients. I love your books. I buy them in mass quantities and I hand them out to people all the time. Thank you, Ruthann. This has been lovely. Thanks very much. We hope you enjoyed this Best of MBS interview. Want more great content? Head to mbs.works. There you'll find MBS's new podcast, Two Pages. You can learn about his best-selling books, and you can join the newsletter. That's mbs.works.